Hi and welcome to Progressive Palaver, a group of lifelong friends and appreciators of music discussing the greatest progressive rock bands album by album. I'm Joe Beauclair, and on this episode of Progressive Palaver, I'm joined by my very good friends Tom Corcoran and Paul Zotter as we discuss Rush's Test for Echo, Vapor Trails, Snakes and Arrows, and Clockwork Angels. Now, because of the gap in between Test for Echo and Vapor Trails, and we all know and and appreciate why that gap occurred and the the tragedy that that surrounded that. But it's interesting when you talk about these albums because Test for Echo obviously, you know, was in sequence and in time directly with Counterparts, also produced by Peter Collins. And I think when they came back for Vapor Trails, the big gap in there creates a discontinuity. So it's interesting that we have these in front of us and sort of see how that fits together. Hmm. The other interesting thing about this particular group of albums is the wide range of sonic qualities that are represented here by these four albums, but perhaps we're getting ahead of ourselves. So, Test for Echo was released on September 10th of 1996. It was produced by Peter Collins and Rush and released on the label Anthem in Canada and Atlantic, presumably everywhere else. Features the now standard lineup of Getty, Alex, and Neil. Song list includes Test for Echo, Driven, Half the World, The Color of Right, Time in Motion, Totem, Dog Years, Virtuality, Resist, Limbo, and Carve Away the Stone. Test for Echo is the 16th studio album by Canadian rock band Rush. It marks the final Rush work prior to the tragic events in Neil Peart's life that put the band on hiatus for several years, as well as the final Rush album to be co-produced by Peter Collins. The cover displays an, and I apologize if I say this incorrectly, an Inuksuk, native to the band's home country of Canada. Created by the Inuit, an Inuksuk is a stone figure in the shape of a human used to mark a food cache, hunting ground, or place where someone lost their life. For the majority of the album, Peart recorded his drum tracks using traditional grip after receiving drum lessons from jazz instructor Freddie Gruber. The title track reached number one on the mainstream rock chart. Driven became a bass showcase for Getty Lee during live performances, while Resist was rearranged as an acoustic song on the Vapor Trails and R30 tours. Since then, the band has not performed any tracks from the album in concert. It was remastered and reissued twice in 2004 as a continuation of the Rush Remasters set, and in 2013 as part of the box set the studio albums, 1989 to 2007. So first off, it's pretty amazing that these four albums spanned over 20 years. It gives you an idea of just how relentless these guys were for years. I mean, really, the, the consistency, putting out albums pretty much like every other year since they began, actually in the beginning, almost you know every year. It's very interesting that we are in sort of an unprecedented situation 
where the last four albums they they finally did slow down and you did mention you know certainly one of the reasons so this is this is going to be interesting talking about these four albums in, in one sitting but i think we're up for it yeah and, and just to be pedantic it's it's actually 16 years between the four but still your your, your point is well taken and i think i remember in the beginning as we started this sort of being amazed at the workaholic nature of this band I want to say there was there was one year that they were well they there's one span where they released like three albums within what was it like 18 months or something like that I mean and they were touring constantly in between there right. was one there was there was one record I remember where we sort of laughed because they they took a whole whopping six weeks off before they they sat down to record that one now we always like to talk about our sort of own experiences with with these albums and this is one of those where i remember buying test for echo relatively soon after it came out so i must have started to sort of figure things out i remember sort of liking it at first and then eventually not being overly impressed and and whatever so as we started to get close to it for this podcast it was one of those things where, again, I was hesitant. I was worried what I was going to find. And it was it, there again. It was one of those days when I put in Test for Echo. And I was initially blown away. I think I was even texting you guys. The way this album opens is, oh, I, I, I was blown away. I'm like, this is great. Why do I remember this being a not great album? We'll get to why I remember it that way, <laughs> but but the beginning of this, I just you know, and even today I was listening to it on the way home, and I just think like the guitar tones in in the uh, the opening track are just so freaking meaty and yummy and uh. I agree with you. We always have some similar views on a lot of things, but we come ab about it differently. I had a preconceived notion about what I wanted out of the next <laughs> out of the next rush release. And unfortunately it was not test for echo because I love counterparts so much. And I'm guilty of this. We talked about this before with, you know, Presto and Roll the Bones. Because I had in my head that counterparts was the you know, the the grand album that you know, I still think it is. I, I did not give Test for Echo a good shake. Like you, Joe, it sort of sat in my collection. About five years ago, I took it out. And I was in the car, and I was like, oh, wow, this is actually much better than I than I remember. And then, you know, went back in the shelf for another five years until, uh, <laughs> days ago, until a couple of days ago. And I loved it until about track six or seven, you know, almost like a little bit past the halfway mark i agree with you joe the production sounds so great it's crisp it's full it definitely has that rush production that i think all of us have have, have grown to love in, in in certain albums and the songwriting is, is wonderful and sort of gives us what we what we want after not comparing it to counterparts i'm you know, certainly able to appreciate it as you know a standalone album but it does have problems toward toward the end 
and it's a different cutoff. It's weird because these last four albums all have very different templates, <laughs> if you will, with like the good and the bad. And Test for Echo is definitely, I would say, like sixty percent in. It's it's great. After that, there 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 gets to be some problems. I'm with you guys. I think obviously the first half is stronger than than the second half. But it really causes me deep introspection when I start to really get into it. And uh, undoubtedly, what I realize about myself when I listen to Test for Echo, that ultimately, if I had my own way, that I would rather be a tortoise from Galapagos uh, than a span of geological time. Did you really have to go there right out of the gate? For me, dog years is sort of like the rush equivalent of built-in bastard radar because there's really nothing that you should really like about that song. And yet somehow I find it incredibly charming. I hum it at work sometimes. I, See, I can't explain uh, it. I can't explain it. I, I can't explain it either because I, I, I understand what you're saying about built-in bastard radar, but I find absolutely nothing redeeming about dog years at all. <laughs> and quite frankly, this is terrible. <laughs> and it, it hasn't gotten any better since. I, I can't say I like the song, but I found the lyrics endearing. I really did. I, and I, 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 I found them really oh, yeah. refreshing. Yes, I did. I, I mean, they I, are. Maybe because, maybe because I love dogs and it just, it's just a different side of Rush. And it wasn't that serious side that we're always hearing. And it was, I, I thought it was very refreshing. I would have loved the song. If it wasn't for, I just, I just just really don't like the chorus, and there's just aspects of it that don't really bring me in. But I have to say, Joe, I mean, I I really love the lyrics to that song. <laughs> yeah, there's you're right. There is definitely something endearing about them. But let's sure. talk about the better songs on on the record. And and I'm just gonna go on and say that while I do appreciate the whole first half of this album, you know, for me the the showstoppers are driven totem and um and resist so paul it's interesting you mentioned resist because i had sort of been running around thinking that after the record scratch of dog years and the dated nonsense of virtuality that the rest of the the album was just you know complete toilet fodder and as i was skimming skimming through it today i i was reminded of resist and i it came on and i'm like hey I kind of dig this. And the thing that's so cool about Resist, I don't think they did it for the actual Test for Echo tour, but after they started doing it like an acoustic version, it would just be Alex and Getty uh, with acoustic guitars, and they would do this really terrific acoustic version, which was actually better than the recorded version because you didn't have all the nonsensical layers of keyboards and gettys singing over one another you <laughs> the just, getty chorus the getty chorus you just had simply you know the guitars and the melody i think that elevated the song and you know doing it in that in that fashion well there are certainly a lot of a lot of wonderful songs on here i have to say test for echo is probably the only album that has an instrumental that i just really don't like <laughs> uh, 
And finishing off this whole chapter, this Rush chapter, is bittersweet because I, I don't want to end on a bad note because literally Rush is my favorite band. I mean, I so much respect for these guys. It's, it's unbelievable. This is probably easily my least favorite instrumental. I kind of felt with this instrumental, they just wrote a song and they didn't really know what to do with it with, with lyrics. And they sort of, you know, tweaked it a little bit and they put it on as an instrumental. And, you know, it still rocks at times, but it just doesn't even compare to, I mean, the last few albums have given us great stuff. Uh, Counterparts and um, the one on um, uh, Roll the Bones. I mean, there was, and actually even, I, I'm not a big fan of uh, Snakes and Arrows, but actually the instrumental on that I think is, is great. Mm. Uh, so I, I think, if there, there is there's a really yeah. there's a small one there's like a little mini one that's maybe about like less than two minutes just kind of want to throw that out there that yeah this one would definitely be my least favorite instrumental agreed i want to mention driven because i think driven is one of the highlights for me and it's got a great riff it's and the, the bass breakdown in the middle was fantastic live and it is great in the um song I like the break with the acoustic guitar. The video was spectacular with the, the car racer. It was just very, overall, everything that um, happened around with Driven, I really enjoyed. I just don't know why they felt the need they had to say Vertigo so many times in the title track. You know, it's, it's funny that that doesn't annoy me, but it doesn't. But I understand what you're talking about here. Did you have three or two tracks on this that really resonated with you? Three tracks. It was Driven, Totem, and Resist. Totem. I would throw in Test for Echo. So I've got four off of this album. Tom, are there any more keepers for this? That about covers it for me. Okay. I think, Tom, you mentioned this. I think that you mentioned Totem would have been great if it was on Presto. And oh no, that was um Oh, it was the other song. It was the it was the breakers. Rec- yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But I agree with you on that and I also agree with you on Totem. I would have loved to hear a version of this song in the Rupert Hine production and quite frankly half the world as well because I think these songs are just produced in such a giant fashion when it comes to the guitars and the drums that if we could have just dialed down the raging low mid-range a little bit and heard some of what was actually being done and maybe cut about half of the backing vocal tracks that were in the mix, those songs would have would have been even better. So, Joe, you want to start so, us off with uh, Vapor Trails? Vapor Trails, everyone's favorite. Vapor Trails was released on May 14th, 2002. They were so close to my birthday. The remixed CD is actually listed here was released on september 30 2013 it was produced by rush and paul northfield Mm. released on anthem records in canada and atlantic everywhere else featuring neil giddy and alex it clocks in at a whopping where is it 67 minutes with One Little Victory, Ceiling Unlimited, Ghost Rider, Peaceable Kingdom, The Stars Look Down, 
how it is, vapor trail, secret touch, earth shine, sweet miracle, nocturne, freeze, part four of fear, and out of the cradle. And Vapor Trails is the 17th studio album by Canadian rock band Rush, produced by Paul Northfield and released in May 2002. Its release marked the first studio album for the band since Test for Echo in 1996, the longest gap between Rush albums until their retirement because of personal tragedies that befell drummer Neil Peart in the late 1990s. According to the band, the entire developmental process for Vapor Trails was extremely taxing and took about 14 months to finish, the longest the band had ever spent writing and recording a studio album. Despite controversy surrounding its production and sound quality, the album debuted to moderate praise and was supported by the band's first tour in six years, including first ever concerts in Mexico City and Brazil, where they played to some of the largest crowds of their career. The album was certified gold in Canada in August 2002. The song Ghost Rider appeared on the album and was written by Peart as a tribute to his travels around the U.S. and Canada after his personal tragedies, while One Little Victory served as the first single in order to announce the band's return from hiatus. The original audio mix of the album received criticism for its heavy use of dynamic range compression. Dissatisfied with the results, Rush had two of the album's tracks mixed again and re-released in Retrospective 3, 1989-2008. The positive response to that move led to a completely revamped version of the album, titled Vapor Trails Remixed, released in 2013. It was released both individually and as part of the box set, the studio albums 1989-2007. Now, as we all know, I have the original. I bought this nice. when it was brand new. I listened to it probably two or three times and quickly decided I didn't need to listen to it anymore. Mm. And again, it sat on my shelf next to Test for Echo for quite some time until this section of the palaver. And I was equally concerned about listening to this, and it was everything I was afraid it was. Well, I think the troubles with this album are well documented. So perhaps we don't have to spend too much time beating the dead horse. So it's interesting because I, I, I don't mean to cut you off, Paul, but obviously through the text, you know, we were having this conversation about the remix and, and everything else. Colby actually doesn't like the remix. Tom really likes the real remix. I listened to the remix once, actually, as I listened to it in my TV room as I was, you know, doing some housework one day. And what I I was pleasantly surprised with the remix that I could, you know, sort of like what you were saying, Paul, I could actually hear some of the, the different parts. And it wasn't just this big blah of sound. And I was I was it was a much more pleasurable experience uh, doing it that way. I was able to, you know, make it through the album without, you know, wanting to do physical harm to myself in any way, shape or form. Yeah. But <laughs> having said that, <laughs> I still think there are some things of, about the songwriting here and and much like we just did with test for echo i think there are a couple of songs that i kind of like for the most part i find this album to just be a constant wash of noise that just gives me a headache yeah it's hard to 
it's hard to really describe what what happened. And you know what it's, I what I was they fucking was, struck goal is what happened. No, oh jeez, here we go. So I'll tee it up for you, Tom. I, I was going to say earlier, you know, the, the the troubles have been well documented. So maybe we could talk about the, the positives that that exist. And and I'll just throw out a couple, and then Tom, I'll just let you, you know, sing sing the praises. This band was away for six years, however long it was, and we slipped the disc into the player. And we hear the opening drum line to one little victory. And it's just like, oh, here they are. They're back. That is the perfect opening track. And while the rest of the song, you know, by the time you get to the end of it, I'm happy that it's over. It really is a terrific, um, terrific way to go. I think Ghost Rider is a terrific song. There's a lot of, of cool things going on in there. It has sort of that ethereal feel that I, that I really enjoy. And I'll be completely honest and say that I think Freeze, part four of Fear, probably my favorite track on the record. If I ever open this album to listen, that's usually the track I go to. There are a lot of really cool ideas in here that just all seem to be, complete, in my opinion, completely overblown. Almost like they worked it so, so much that they took all the greatness out of it and just kind of made it good. And you package that up in just the absolute... I mean, it's not just bad production for Rush. It's just terrible. And the remix, while, like you said, Joe, it's it sounds better. It's, you can actually listen to it without wanting to drive your car off the road. It just really kind of sounds like a, a demo. Ultimately, once you're three or four tracks into the into the album, it it, it becomes just as annoying, although annoying in a different in a different way. So there's a lot of cool ideas in here, but none that really just you know, bring it all the way home for me. And, and it's unfortunate for the album. Cause I know it, I think it meant a lot to the band and um, for the most part, just kind of missed the mark for me, but Tom, you may feel otherwise. Tom, you love it. I do. I, I really enjoy this album. I want to first say there is a, an interesting little tidbit from an interview with Getty Lee. And he's talking about how they, the whole recording process of Vapor Trails. And to give you the short of the long, he he says it was a painstaking process. It was very difficult for them because they, as Joe mentioned, uh, they had never even remotely recorded anything that took 14 months. He mentions that they actually kind of made fun of bands who would talk about, you know, recording their album in 14 months. He would say, Gosh, what do these bands do for 14 months? It's just like it's completely unheard of. And then here we are, you know, it took 14 months. So I'll be completely honest with you guys. I had not even heard this album until a few months ago. I myself went on a rush hiatus uh, and I, I saw them in concert for the uh, Clockwork Angels uh, concert. And it was a great concert. And, but I still hadn't bought an album since Test for Echo. So what that means here is that I still have, to this day, I've not heard the original mix. I've only heard the remix. What I'm hearing, yes, it still has a high noise floor and it's still a loud album, but I'm hearing all the parts. It's... A dirtier 
sound. It's a dirtier feel, okay? I mean, this is a loud album. But I'm not hearing it as, oh, what happened? Oh, what happened? Oh, you know, it's like, okay, well, this is just, I like hard rock and I like hearing stuff like this. So what Vapor Trails does not have, and I'll be the first <laughs> to admit this, is a great first song. I like the beat. And actually, it's what I wake to, uh, it's what I wake up to every morning. It's my um, <laughs> it's my it's my alarm. I actually wake up to Neil Peart's drum intro to the first song. But the song itself is not great. That puts you in a certain place because you're not excited at that point. I think if you take away the first song and the last song, you could have a real strong. 10 songs on that album you have you, you would have a very good album that being said it's not a perfect album for me but it's not really that far away from test for echo to be honest in my in my assessment but what i still don't understand i have known you guys my whole life i know the music you guys like i know what music gets you excited i know what music you don't like there are some songs on here that I'm just like, I, I think of you, Paul. Like, I'm like, these are like, Paul should love these songs. And you did mention Freeze Part for Fear. I mean, that's one of the songs. I think that's a phenomenal song. And I, I actually think of you, Paul, in particular. I'm like, God, you know, Paul should love the song. I, I just don't understand. Why you give it a hard time? I understand the high noise floor and the, I do, I do whatever, love that song, but that's but, the song I love though. Okay, so but, thinking, uh, but even like, me... all right, let's take another one then. Let's take Earthshine. Okay. Yeah, I think that's doesn't a, really doesn't really grab me. Fun, oddly oh, enough, I think that's such a great song. It just has a groove. It has a wonderful melody. The production is fine. I mean, it, it doesn't have that clean crisp rush production that we're sort of used to yeah, let, let, except let, for crest of steel but you know but, <laughs> I, 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 I appreciate everything you're saying but but let's not say that the production is fine on anything on this album that's let's let's just agree to that it some may be better than others but well and, are you talking you know, about the remix or are you talking about the original well i'm certainly talking about the original but i'm going to throw the remix in there as well I, I i think i'm going to try to find you a copy of this and send it to you just so you can experience the joy that i've lived with all of these years the remix was much much better and earthshine is one of the ones that i do kind of like so i hear exactly what you're saying paul you had said when i when i first started trying to listen to this and i started bagging on on paul northfield and you're like paul northfield did some good stuff and and i was just i pulled up his wiki page so i wanted to run down this quickly because it it really is kind of remarkable he was the engineer on permanent waves and exit stage left and moving pictures he yeah. and signals he was the engineer on asia's alpha hmm. he's credited with synthesizer and programming on grace under pressure he produced Men Without Hats, Pop Goes the World, which is interesting. He's listed as the engineer on Mind Crime and A Show of Hands, as well as Asia's Then and Now, Queensryche's Empire. Mm -hmm. And then he started doing some 
more interesting stuff. He's the producer on different stages. A lot of suicidal tendencies in dream theater later huh. in his career. Okay. Oh, so whoa. Yeah, I'm sorry. He also engineered a a porcupine tree album. So, boom. Yeah, I mean, he was the one that relayed the story of Alex Lyson using the Sound Chaser inspired sound to get the guitar solo for Tom Sawyer down. Um, oh, really? Okay. Yeah. The amazing guitar sounds that we raved about in the Permanent Wave episodes were crafted Alex Lyson and Paul Northfield side by side. So the guy, you know, the guy's got credibility and just like the boys in the band, I'm certainly willing to give him a pass on this one because just apparently they just didn't really know what to do with. I, and, um, I'm, I'm, not this, gonna, I'm not going to I'm not going to give him a pass. This is so bad. He doesn't get a pass. It's terrible. I, I will say, like, you know, to to the point is that I've heard some really bad recordings of really good songs. And I still love the songs, even though the recordings are really hard to listen to. I think that is the thing more than anything else in Vapor Trails. Pound for pound, the songs just don't stack up. You know, it's funny, Tom, like you said, the, the, the songs that you think I should love to, to listen to and I should love them. I think part of the thing with Earth, Earthshine for me is that it's just, it's so heavy. It's just this heavy, monotonous guitar tone that it's hard for me to follow what's actually going on. And more and more in this album, I think it's more of the vocal melodies and the choices that are made and all of the insane backing vocals that happen. It just, to me, it, it dilutes the song and I, and I think the songs suffer overall. And I think that's the biggest, you know, for me, that's the biggest problem with this album is it's not so much the terrible production. It's just that the, the songs for me aren't as good as, as what I've, I'm used to hearing with Rush. Vapor Trails is always going to go down as a complete anomaly as far as where we are with it. It's Rush's answer to Coil. Okay, that I'll, I'll agree with you on that. Um, it, it's, it's an album that we disagree on. This is the direction that these guys chose chose to go in. Uh, it, it wasn't that they just got sloppy. It wasn't that they just, for whatever reason, dropped the ball on the sound or their playing or whatever. They, this was their sound. And it may have been a little hot, the first uh, Vapor Trails, before it was remixed. And there, there certainly was some problems with that. But overall when you're talking about these three albums, this was their sound that they were going for. And I think it was, it's very consistent and it's solid. What you're touching upon is that these guys have been putting out albums for decades. It's the same three guys and they have been true to themselves all the way through, even when they were doing great things and people were saying, ah, they sound too much like R.E.M. or they sound too much like, you know, the police. They did what they wanted to do. And I can't help but just have this amazing amount of respect for exactly what you're talking about, Tom. The fact that after all these years, they are still saying, yeah, we're going to record these records. They're still recording challenging musical records. They're uh, giving it their all, whether we like the lyrics or not. And they're being true to themselves and they're being true artisans. And you just have to respect them doing that, even if it's not among your favorite of, of what they do. 
I wish I could be like those guys on Leave That Thing Alone where I could just make funny jokes and laugh hysterically at the expense of the band I love. But I can't. <laughs> like, I feel terrible about not liking this album. Like, I feel guilty. So that takes us to Snakes and Arrows, released on May 1st, 2007, produced by Nick Ros... Uh, I can't even say the guy's name. Raskulinets and Rush. Nick, I apologize. Nick apparently is an American who uh, lives in Nashville. I looked up his wiki quickly. He's got some interesting credits to his name. It was released on Anthem Records in Canada as usual and Atlantic Worldwide, featuring Neil, Alex, and Getty. Track listing is Far Cry, Armor and Sword, Working Them Angels, The Larger Bowl, Spindrift, The Main Monkey Business, The Way the Wind Blows, Hope, Faithless, Bravest Face, Good News First, Malignant Narcissism, I'm sorry, there are actually three instrumentals here on Snakes and Arrows, and we hold on. Snakes and Arrows is the 18th studio album by the Canadian rock band Rush, released May 1st, 2007. It was their first studio album since 2004's Feedback, and their last studio album officially with Atlantic Records, at least in the U.S., where they changed distributors to Roadrunner Records as of August 31st, 2011. The album was recorded in five weeks between November and December 2006, at Allaire Studios in New York's Catskill Mountains and mixed and mastered at Oceanway Studios in Los Angeles, California. Snakes and Arrows was released on CD on May 1st, 2007 as a double LP album on June 19, listed limited to 5,000 copies, as well as being the first album released on the new MVI, that's Music Video Interactive Format, limited to 25,000 copies on June 26th. Snakes and Arrows debuted at number three on the Billboard 200 chart, where it remained for 14 weeks. It was certified gold in Canada in September 2007. The track Malignant Narcissism was nominated for a Grammy Award under the category of Best Rock Instrumental Performance. The album was named as one of Classic Rock's 10 essential progressive rock albums of the decade. Boy, I'd like to see that list. It was reissued and remastered in 2013 as part of the box set, the studio albums, 1989 to 2007. Now, let's just talk about that last sentence here just for grins and giggles. And, and Tom, I was just going over the Power Windows episode where you have a very eloquent discussion of why Power Windows is progressive. I don't think there's anything progressive about Snakes and Arrows. Am I wrong about that? I think this is a reputation inclusion in, in this progressive rock uh, albums list. I just find that to be shocking. Yeah. I Wow. Yeah. There's, um, these last two albums really hurt to talk about because these guys just did no wrong for years, and I, I have so much respect for them. But I really did not like this album. The first song is great. The second song, I can, you know, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm still with it. But it just, to me, it's the, it's, this album is what, you know, Vapor Trails is to you guys. I'm just hearing the wall of sound. I'm hearing, I'm hearing great sounding guitar tones, but I'm just hearing everything in my face. 
I'm not hearing the the great Getty Lee melodies. I'll tell you, I really wanted to like it because I, I, I love this sound. I love this big guitar sound of this album, but the songs just did not. I mean, it's just a real disappointment, this album. I do like the longer <laughs> instrumental, but this was, to me, the the sound that I would have wanted to hear they're, they're just not they're just not good at this particular style <laughs> i don't know they're, they're just <laughs> not good at doing the hard rock grunge thing like they just it's just not them and you know a little bit i like a little bit more of the songs in um clockwork angels but this album particularly really got on my nerves and i have more of a feeling about this being a complete wall of sound than I ever would with Vapor Trail. So I'll be interested to hear what you guys think of it. Well, you know, it's funny that you say all these great things, Tom. I, I far prefer this record over Vapor Trails. I just think it sounds better. I think the overall arrangements are better. I just think the song, I just, they just got it wired in a little bit better here. Far Cry all the way down through the main monkey business. That's what one, two, three, four, five, six, the first six tracks. I like them, and I like listening to them. I I don't I don't love the songs. They don't like completely connect to me. I don't find myself humming them while I'm walking down the corridors at work like I do dog ears. Right? Honestly, saying. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like I kick on, yeah, yeah, armor and sword with the big you know drums at the beginning and the. I mean, it's just like the guitars are. Like you said, they're giants. So I really appreciate what they're doing here. It's funny that you mentioned about like they're not really good at this style because I wondered what these songs would sound like if they were presented in a more regular style. Like there are a couple of parts of these where I think, gosh, this would be really cool if it was just done with like like a nice simple keyboard sound and you know a regular beat or an acoustic guitar or some other kind of instrumentation. Everything are just these big, heavy guitars. I don't think there's as much dynamics in the guitars overall. And the fucking too many Gettys are just out of control on this album. I don't know if Getty's just at the point here where he's compensating because, you know, by putting extra vocals in to just make it sound fuller. Because I think he really, he really kills it on Clockwork angels his tone is sounds like an older guy but i think he sings more like a youthful person in that in that record so i wonder to your point about the style man what it would have been like if they would have just said let's just mess around with the different styles and instrumentations on this and not just play all of these songs like this giant heavy metal power trio which is which is basically their approach i would have loved to have heard that and it's interesting paul because we were texting today about the garden, the, the last song on Clockwork Angels. Yeah, and I wonder if maybe that at one point was a heavier song, and they and they revamped it. So I'm wondering if they what would what it would sound like if they did sort of revamp some of the stuff. Yeah, it would be it would be really fun to uh, to check it out. I can't let the conversation go without saying when I click on the beginning of Working Them Angels. 
I don't know if you can hear this, and it probably doesn't sound great, but this totally reminds me of Marillion and Solange Moth or whatever the name of that song is. Ah. Right? It's got that that same kind of feel. I, I'm like hmm. making dinner the other night, and I'm like singing, waiting for the whistle to blow while I'm listening to this song. Which and song is so that again, called? like, wow, imagine if that was reimagined in a different way instead of just giant heavy guitars. Back to what you, one of the things that you brought up, Paul, I think the bigger Alex, Alex's guitars are, and it seems to me they just keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger, which typically bigger is better, right? Okay. But I mean, I think they've gotten so big, the band got into this routine where he, you, they, they had to double and triple and quadruple Getty's voice to sort of keep up with the large sound of the guitar. Yeah. And once you go in that direction, you really have to have a strong, bare-bones understanding of the song. Because if you're not 100% with the melody, there's so many voices, you really lose the overall melody. And believe me, this is going to come into play. You're going to be hearing me talk a lot about this when we talk about the second half of the Yes catalog. It's an interesting point, Tom. You're right. What, like, what are they going to do? Have one vocal line trying to break through all of those, those guitars. And for me, the problem with the guitars is that, to me, they, don't, they no longer sound big. They just sound completely processed. When I saw them in concert, the Clockwork Angels concert, was blown away about how big these guitars sounded. I mean, he had just a, a great sound on these newer songs. And I think I liked the songs because it was just get it was just there was just one Getty. Yeah. <laughs> there wasn't all like twenty thousand just just enough Gettys. Yes, it was just yeah. enough Gettys. And I actually heard the way maybe they originally intended and then things got diluted. May I don't know, but I really love what I heard in the concert. Joe? So I, too, had never owned either this or Clockwork Angels. I went out and I, I purchased them. And I will say, I do like the packaging they've got going on. I like the graphics. I like this particular format of a CD case. Big fan of that. The the general problem that I have, I'm back to Getty just making noise at me constantly. And I don't like it. And I feel it carries through that album and, and these two albums for the most part. Although I think Clockwork Angels is better. That's kind of generally what, what turns me off about this. But I, I've got a grassy knoll theory as it pertains to at least Snakes and Arrows. I don't know. I haven't had a chance to to try this out with the rest. So I bought these CDs and I spent a lot of time listening to them in my car. Clearly snakes and arrows is just, you know, it's, it's, it, it's, it's headache inducing. It, it really, really is. Day before last, as I was sort of trying to catch up after all the graduation stuff, I took a different tack and I ripped these four albums into iTunes and I downloaded them onto my phone with the intent of listening to them at my desk while I was working during the day to sort of kind of catch up. What I ended up doing with Snakes and Arrows was actually just playing my phone through my car stereo. 
And it was amazing. It wasn't totally obnoxious today. I could actually hear what Neil was playing. And I was like, this is cool. So I, my Grassy Knoll theory is, were these albums, in fact, produced, engineered, mastered, whatever the appropriate term is, with the idea of people listening to them on their phone or streaming them or whatever else? You know, much like when digital music first came in, if something wasn't mixed for the digital media, it sounded shitty because it was mixed for an LP or whatever. Maybe that's what we're dealing with here, because clearly the experience I had with Snakes and Arrows on, you know, just listening straight to the CD was different from what I had after I'd ripped it into my phone today. And I almost enjoyed this album. It was surprising. That's interesting. There's a lot to enjoy here. I, like I said in the, in the group chat, you know, there are a lot of, a lot of bright points in Snakes and Arrows. You just kind of have to have a lot of patience to find your way yeah. there. That's all. So we want to finish up then here with this quickly. Clockwork Angels yeah. released. And this has a, it has a rolling release. Very interesting. June 8, 2012 in Australia. June 12, 2012, U.S. and Canada. June 13, 2012 in Europe. Produced by Rush and Nick R. again, released on Anthem in Canada and Roadrunner Records, other places. Neil, Getty, and Alex. Song lists, and this, this also clocks in at a, an hour and six minutes. Caravan, BU2B, Clockwork Angels, The Anarchist, Carnies, Halo Effect, Seven Cities of Gold, The Wreckers, Headlong Flight, BU2B2, Wish Them Well, and The Garden. Clockwork Angels is the 19th and final studio album by Canadian rock band Rush, released on June 12, 2012. The album was recorded in April 2010 at Blackbird Studio in Nashville, Tennessee, and from October to December 2011 at Revolution Recording in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Two songs that would eventually appear on the album, Caravan and BU2B, were released to radio stations and made available as a digital download on June 1st, 2010. Following the release of these two songs, the band embarked on the Time Machine tour with Caravan and BU2B included in the set list. Clockwork Angels was completed following this tour. The album's second single, titled Headlong Flight, was released on April 19th, 2012. The album's third, third single, The Wreckers, was released on July 25th, 2012. On February 2013, The Anarchist was released as the fourth and final single. A 10-inch picture disc version of the song The Garden was released as part of the 2013 Record Store Day Black Friday sale, limited to 3,000 copies. It is also the band's last full-length studio album before their retirement in 2018. The album debuted at number one in Canada and number two on the Billboard 200 chart. The album won the Rock Album of the Year Award at the 2013 Juno Awards. Now, very good quickly, old Juno Awards. The Juno Awards. We we need to we need to do a special episode on all the Juno Awards. There that you Rush go. has won. I they win them be, all because that would be the hell else well, do they have to compare it to? Unless we, we need, Triumph put out an album the same year, then they could have split a couple of the awards with them. There you go. <laughs> I, I I think it would be fun. So this album, again, as I mentioned, I'd never owned this album. I knew it existed. I had probably seen a couple of the songs when I saw Rush uh, in 2012, 
12, I guess, which maybe it was this tour. I don't even know. What I did know about Rush or about Clockwork Angels prior to listening to it was the leave that thing or no, I'm sorry, not leave that thing alone. It was the I don't even own a television, which is the main podcast by the guys who do leave that thing alone, where they review bad books and they reviewed the novelization of this written by Neil and I believe it was Brian Anderson. So general, there you go. Kevin it's, Ke- it's, it's Kevin Anderson. Kevin Anderson, thank you. This book, Joe, this book has been sitting on my coffee table for over a year and a half now. And I still have and- not been able to get past. <laughs> I'm currently bookmarked at page 106. 106. 106 for a year and a half. It's a, it's a little <laughs> slow. I was pleasantly surprised. I, You know, again, and we've already talked about this. I think clockwork fits in pretty well in this series, whether you like that or not. This is apparently what they want to do. Obviously, there's a song or a, a story involved here, which, you know, who doesn't enjoy a good a good concept album? Very, very cool. Clockwork has these annoying, seemingly random low frequency resonances. It's pissing me off. As I was driving around, like the song is there and you just have this this sort of rumble that it doesn't seem to be related to the music at all. It just, you know, I don't know why it's there, but it was very, very annoying. Yeah. So, I, you know, this is kind of the point that I made earlier on when when I talked about, you know, the, the new phase of Rush sounds starting with Testa for Echo. Everything is so processed. There's so much low end in the drums there is so much processing and the guitars and i think that the effect that i get is similar you know whenever i hear stuff like that there's just this it's like an inaudible wind that is driving through the sound because there's so many frequencies from so many different areas hitting you that you can't perceive individual things happening you can't even perceive runs in the guitar line because it's, there's just this this wall and wind of sound that's that's kind of going by you. I think overall in Clockwork Angels they do a better job with that compared to the last two albums. But I, you're totally right; it's present for sure. For me, I enjoy it the most when I listen to it on headphones at a pretty moderate volume. Not not loud, not soft, but certainly not mm-hmm. like ball busting rocking. You know. Like low enough that you can hear everything and enjoy it. It's pretty funny. Yeah, it, w- it was funny because I was sort of enjoying Seven Cities of Gold when I first started to notice it. It was probably there before, but for whatever reason, I was paying more attention and, and it, it was kind of all over the back half of the album. But in terms of songs, I find I really like the first four. I think the Wreckers is exceptional and I love the Garden. So I, I can get behind that. I would even add in Headlong Flight. I think that song is just kick-ass. What, what's interesting is that this album does have tracks. Like, I will walk around the office humming the main riff to Caravan. I will hum along and sing in my head the records as I'm going through my workday. And I think I called it the Breakers earlier, so sorry about that. This album has somehow permeated that that consciousness that the, the the previous two have not. And I agree with you, Joe. I think the first four songs, Blockbuster, 
And one of the things I love about the garden the most is it reminds me of the end of Hemispheres. It is such a wonderful way to end the album and, and knowing that this is the last Rush album that we have. I just love how it kind of brings sort of this finality to, uh, to the music. You know, I think to sum up this album, and again, I really wanted to like this album. <laughs> I, I really worked. I like, it was like, I was like exercising. I was like, okay, this time I'm, I'm, I would try to get in the right frame of mind. Cause I, I really wanted to like, like this, this heavy sounding rush album. I do like some of the songs on this album. Even the wall of sound gets to me. <laughs> and, and <that's, laughs> really? Wow. That's so I mean, I, I listen to five finger death. And so I'm, I'm used to like really heavy guitar sounds and, and whatnot. And so that stuff I don't shy away from, but you're right, Paul, there is, and, and Joe, you, you both brought it up. It's just, there is a, a certain under a tone that you can't get rid of that you, you have to shake at some point or you have to do something different if you really want to be successful in conveying your ideas. I would personally argue that the Wreckers and the Garden are, in fact, good, if not excellent, Rush songs. Irrespective of this album, the last three albums, whatever, I think, I think these two, at very least, illustrate exactly what you're saying, Tom. There is... You know, there's still Rush sitting under there. But I wonder if what you're describing doesn't come about because of the fact that it's this concept album and they're they're trying to tell a story and perhaps build connective tissue, as we've talked about before. That that would be my thought on that. But again, I don't know this album well enough to, to really say that that's what's going on. But it's, I, it's a I, possibility. Yeah, I think you touch on a good point. I think there is some of that going on here the the story is about you know this is going to be a big shock to you guys when you hear the, 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 what the story is about it's about a young man who is living in a world that you know assigns every bit of his life to him and he has very little individuality and he's he's kind of fighting against what the expectations are of him and he makes this big secret pact with a girlfriend to meet after dark after hours in a place where they're not supposed to be and she stands him up because she's not brave enough to do it. And so he jumps on the, the, the train that, that kind of runs by his, uh, his area, wherever he lives. And he stowaways on a train and he ends up in this new strange world. And so there are a lot of his discovery of this world in the music. And it's, it's kind of this wondrous and phenomenal does, thing that he goes through. And I think that they try does, to does capture he- some of that. Does he find a guitar? Well, not before page 106, Joe. (laughs) (laughs) So if he finds one, it happens deeper into the book, which I haven't got. And I'm a little disappointed in myself. I really wanted to read it. I felt kind of responsible as a member in Progressive Palaver to the listeners out there to to read the book. But I didn't. I failed. So. uh, well, Paul, don't don't view it as a failure. View it as an opportunity. So perhaps <laughs> I can pick up a copy of Clockwork Angels. And and Tom, I don't know if you're a reader, but but maybe you can. We can all never, read the book. I, I, I never touch the stuff. <laughs> yeah, 
Okay, so so Paul and I will read the book, and then we can do a bonus episode on the book. Maybe we'll we can we compare our reviews of the book with a re-review of the album and see if if it improves. Maybe maybe we could because it certainly does. It's nice to have a story with the music. It's kind of cool when those two things go together. Um, I yeah. tried to do that once in my younger days, and um, it's just fun. It's just a cool. It's very creative. Anything else to say on Clockwork Angels at this point? Of the four that we've discussed, it's probably the one that I will continue listening to over um, the, the next span of geological time, if you will. <laughs> um, I, I would agree with you on that. Tom, I, I think you're going to spend your time with Vapor Trails, if I had to guess. I will, but you know, I, I'm, I'm going to keep giving Clockwork Angels more chances. Because I, I, I really like this sound. I'm hoping I just hadn't caught on. I think Snakes and Arrows is a lost cause for me. I really had a bad couple <laughs> listens to, to, to that. But there are a few songs in Clockwork Angels that um, do stick with me. It's just not a very consistent thing. So I, I'm, I, I will give it another couple shots and, and hopefully... Yeah. Well, and and for me, I'm I'm going to try to spend a little bit more time with the remixed Vapor Trails. In fact, I'm going to try to find the remixed CD so that I can sort of listen to it the way I normally listen to things. Streaming is not what I normally do when I listen to music, so I'm curious about that. But as we are finishing up Rush here, I do want to sort of, you know, Put a put a, a happy face and and a you know a big bright shiny bow on this and I'll reiterate what I had said earlier on in this episode. Rush has earned my respect tremendously to the point where I'm willing to try to work with them if they're going somewhere <laughs> that I wouldn't necessarily go. Yeah, and you know I like I said I. For me, it's it's certainly paying off here in, in Clockwork Angels. I'm I'm interested at this point. I'm interested in in spending the effort to to try to figure it out. When you think about all of the episodes that we've now done on Rush and all of the albums we've talked about and all of the changes they've gone through, and they've done all of it, most of it, extraordinarily well. There's a reason why when we talk about the greatest progressive rock bands in in terms of progressive palaver that rush was one of the first ones that we did i've really really enjoyed this segment on on rush it has been eye-opening i've learned quite a lot about you know albums that i thought i knew i've gotten to explore albums that i really didn't know well at all and i've enjoyed virtually all of it and like I said, even even today, it was so nice to sort of have that that pleasant experience with Snakes and Arrows that I wasn't really expecting. It's almost like going back and listening to Tormato on vinyl and saying, you know what, I can see some good stuff here. I'm extraordinarily pleased with, with this entire catalog at this point. And even if I don't like certain things, I can at least appreciate, you know, the value that they have. Yeah, and the thing that has struck me, watching the documentaries, reading all those tour books, Neil's interpretation of the albums, and the, the blurbs that 
Alex and Getty put in the tour books and in their interviews, the way they regard one another with such a camaraderie of respect and yet sort of this boyish kind of razzing, you know, just like friends do. You can't help but really become endeared to the three of these guys. I just really ended up liking them and it really made me enjoy this experience a lot more. Awesome. Yeah, I I really appreciate these guys from going from the beginning of the catalog to the end with these guys. This is a much more intimate because you're we're dealing with three people, okay? I know with yes, we have a bunch of different people that go in and out and I mean it's and it's all great, you know, it's it's all it's all different. It's all it's all unique and it's all part of the process that we're going through, but for Rush just having this mammoth career over 40 years and having the body of work that they have, even after slowing down the last four albums, the work ethic that these guys have put forth over their career and that just the relentless quest to just do the absolute best they can and and actually give it to us, okay? We might not like every single song, but they're so consistent it's just unheard of, and this is Rush from beginning to end, except for the first album. But basically, for all intents and purposes, the whole career has been three people over 40 years. And it's just it's so fun to see that when you, when you go from the beginning to the end the way we've done. And, I mean, these guys are phenomenal. On that note... We want to thank all of the listeners for tuning in to this episode of Progressive Palaver and for following us throughout our Rush journey. We plan now to move back into YES and help celebrate the summer of YES 50 by continuing on the YES catalog before, and I think we're all looking forward to this, finally later on in the year moving into Genesis, which I absolutely cannot wait to do. As always, we invite and solicit your inputs, your comments, your questions on these four albums or any of the Rush catalog. You can reach us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We are at progpala at all of those. You can email us. Our email address is progpala at gmail.com. And Progressive Palaver is, as always, is available for subscription and download on both iTunes and Google Play. And we are hosted on SoundCloud. Thank you all. the
the label. Featuring What's that, Joe? I, I, I can't hear you over the crunching of the chips. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, Joe, can you speak up, please? <laughs> I knew that was going to happen. I knew it. I'll make sure I mute my, my crunching. Sorry about that. <laughs> 